Chapter Five, Part One of *The Shadow Line: A Confession* by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter Five, Part One. I heard the clatter of the scissors escaping from his hand, noted the perilous heave of his whole person over the edge of the bunk after them, and then, returning to my first purpose, pursued my course onto the deck the sparkle of the sea filled my eyes it was gorgeous and barren monotonous and without hope under the empty curve of the sky the sails hung motionless and slack the very folds of their sagging surfaces moved no more than carved granite the impetuosity of my advent made the man at the helm start slightly a block aloft squeaked incomprehensibly for what on earth could have made it do so it was a whistling note like a bird's for a long, long time I faced an empty world, steeped in an infinity of silence, through which the sunshine poured and flowed for some mysterious purpose. Then I heard Ransom's voice at my elbow. I have put Mr. Burns back to bed, sir. You have. Well, sir, he got out all of a sudden, but when he let go of the edge of his bunk, he fell down. He isn't light-headed, though, it seems to me. No, I said dully, without looking at Ransom. He waited for a moment, then cautiously, as if not to give offence. I don't think we need lose much of that stuff, sir, he said. I can sweep it up every bit of it almost, and then we could sift the glass out. I will go about it at once. It will not make the breakfast late, not ten minutes. Oh, yes, I said bitterly. Let the breakfast wait. Sweep up every bit of it, and then throw the damned lot overboard. The profound silence returned, and when I looked over my shoulder ransom the intelligent serene ransom had vanished from my side the intense loneliness of the sea acted like poison on my brain when i turned my eyes to the ship i had a morbid vision of her as a floating grave who hasn't heard of ships found drifting haphazard with their crews all dead i looked at the seaman at the helm i had an impulse to speak to him and indeed his face took on an expectant cast as if he had guessed my intention but in the end I went below, thinking I would be alone with the greatness of my trouble for a little while. But through his open door Mr. Burns saw me come down and addressed me grumpily, Well, sir? I went in. It isn't well at all, I said. Mr. Burns, re-established in his bed-place, was concealing his hirsute cheek in the palm of his hand. That confounded fellow has taken away the scissors from me, were the next words he said. The tension I was suffering from was so great that it was perhaps just as well that Mr. Burns had started on this grievance. He seemed very sore about it and grumbled, Does he think I am mad or what? I don't think so, Mr. Burns, I said. I looked upon him at that moment as a model of self-possession. I even conceived on that account a sort of admiration for that man, who had, apart from the intense materiality of what was left of his beard, come as near to being a disembodied spirit as any man can do and live. I noticed the preternatural sharpness of the ridge of his nose, the deep cavities of his temples, and I envied him. He was so reduced that he would probably die very soon. Enviable man, so near extinction, while I had to bear within me a tumult of suffering vitality, doubt, confusion, self-reproach, and an indefinite reluctance to meet the horrid logic of the situation. I could not help muttering, I feel as if I were going mad myself. Mr. Burns glared spectrally, 
but otherwise wonderfully composed. I always thought he would play us some deadly trick, he said, with a peculiar emphasis on the he. It gave me a mental shock, but I had neither the mind nor the heart nor the spirit to argue with him. My form of sickness was indifference, the creeping paralysis of a hopeless outlook, so I only gazed at him. Mr. Burns broke into further speech. Eh? What? No? You won't believe it? Well, how do you account for this? How do you think it could have happened? Happened? I repeated dully. Why, yes, how in the name of the infernal powers did this thing happen? Indeed, on thinking it out, it seemed incomprehensible that it should just be like this. The bottles emptied, refilled, rewrapped, and replaced. A sort of plot, a sinister attempt to deceive, a thing resembling sly vengeance, but for what? Or else a fiendish joke. But Mr. Burns was in possession of a theory. It was simple, and he uttered it solemnly in a hollow voice. I suppose they have given him about fifteen pounds in high fong for that little lot. Mr. Burns, I cried. He nodded grotesquely over his raised legs, like two broomsticks in the pajamas, with enormous bare feet at the end. Why not? The stuff is pretty expensive in this part of the world, and they were very short of it in Tonkin. And what did he care? You have not known him. I have, and I have defied him. He feared neither God, nor devil, nor man, nor wind, nor sea, nor his own conscience. And I believe he hated everybody and everything. But I think he was afraid to die. I believe I am the only man who ever stood up to him. I faced him in that cabin where you live now when he was sick, and I cowed him then. He thought I was going to twist his neck for him. If he had had his way, we would have been beating up against the Nord-East monsoon as long as he lived, and afterwards, too, for ages and ages, acting the flying Dutchman in the China Sea. Ha! Ha! But why should he replace the bottles like this, I began. Why shouldn't he? Why should he want to throw the bottles away? They fit the drawer. They belong to the medicine chest. And they were wrapped up, I cried. Well, the wrappers were there. Did it from habit, I suppose, and as to refilling, there is always a lot of stuff they send in paper parcels that burst after a time, and then who can tell? I suppose you didn't taste it, sir? But of course you are sure. No, I said, I didn't taste it. It is all overboard now. Behind me, a soft cultivated voice said, I have tasted it. It seemed a mixture of all sorts, Swedish, saltish, very horrible. Ransome, stepping out of the pantry, had been listening for some time, as it was very excusable in him to do. A dirty trick, said Mr. Burns. I always said he would. The magnitude of my indignation was unbounded, and the kind, sympathetic doctor, too. The only sympathetic man I ever knew. Instead of writing that warning letter, the very refinement of sympathy, why didn't the man make a proper inspection? But as a matter of fact, it was hardly fair to blame the doctor. The fittings were in order, and the medicine chest is an officially arranged affair. There was nothing really to arouse the slightest suspicion. The person I could never forgive was myself. Nothing should ever be taken for granted. The seed of everlasting remorse was sown in my breast. I feel it's all my fault, I exclaimed. Mine and nobody else's, that's how I feel. I shall never forgive myself. That's very foolish, sir, said Mr. Burns fiercely and after this effort he fell back exhausted on his bed. He closed his eyes, he panted. This affair, this abominable surprise, had shaken him up too. As I turned away, I perceived Ransom looking at me blankly. He appreciated what it meant, 
but he managed to produce his pleasant wistful smile then he stepped back into his pantry and i rushed up on deck again to see whether there was any wind any breath under the sky any stir of the air any sign of hope the deadly stillness met me again nothing was changed except that there was a different man at the wheel he looked ill his whole figure drooped and he seemed rather to cling to the spokes than hold them with a controlling grip i said to him you are not fit to be here i can manage sir he said feebly as a matter of fact there was nothing for him to do the ship had no steerage way she lay with her head to the westward the everlasting co-ring visible over the stern with a few small islets black spots in the great blaze swimming before my troubled eyes and but for those bits of land there was no speck on the sky no speck on the water no shape of vapour no wisp of smoke no sail no boat no stir of humanity no sign of life nothing the first question was what to do what could one do the first thing to do obviously was to tell the men i did it that very day i wasn't going to let the knowledge simply get about i would face them they were assembled on the quarter-deck for the purpose just before i stepped out to speak them i discovered that life could hold terrible moments no confessed criminal had ever been so oppressed by his sense of guilt this is why perhaps my face was set hard and my voice curt and unemotional while i made my declaration that i could do nothing more for the sick in the way of drugs as to such care as could be given them they knew they had had it i would have held them justified in tearing me limb from limb the silence which followed upon my words was almost harder to bear than the angriest uproar i was crushed by the infinite depth of its reproach but as a matter of fact i was mistaken in a voice which i had great difficulty in keeping firm i went on i suppose men you have understood what i said and you know what it means a voice or two were heard yes sir we understand they had kept silence simply because they thought that they were not called to say anything and when i told them that i intended to run into singapore and that the best chance for the ship and the men was in the efforts all of us sick and well must make to get her along out of this i received the encouragement of a low assenting murmur and of a louder voice exclaiming surely there is a way out of this blamed hole here is an extract from the notes i wrote at the time we have lost coring at last for many days now i don't think i have been two hours below altogether i remain on deck of course night and day and the nights and the days wheel over us in succession whether long or short who can say all sense of time is lost in the monotony of expectation of hope and of desire which is the only one get the ship to the southward get the ship to the southward the effect is curiously mechanical the sun climbs and descends the night swings over our heads as if somebody below the horizon were turning a crank it is the pettiest the most aimless and all through that miserable performance i go on tramping tramping the deck how many miles have i walked on the poop of that ship a stubborn pilgrimage of sheer restlessness diversified by short excursions below to look upon mr burns i don't know whether it is an illusion but he seems to become more substantial from day to day he doesn't say much for indeed the situation doesn't lend itself to idle remarks i notice this even with the men as i watch them moving or sitting about the decks they don't talk to each other it strikes me that if there exists an invisible ear catching the whispers of the earth it will find this ship the most silent spot on it 
No, Mr. Burns has not much to say to me. He sits in his bunk with his beard gone, his moustaches flaming, and with an air of silent determination on his chalky physiognomy. Ransome tells me he devours all the food that is given him to the last scrap, but that apparently he sleeps very little. Even at night, when I go below to fill my pipe, I notice that, though dozing flat on his back, he still looks very determined. From the side glances he gives me when awake, it seems as though he were annoyed at being interrupted in some arduous mental operation, and as I emerge on deck, the ordered arrangement of the stars meets my eye, unclouded, infinitely wearisome. There they are, stars, sun, sea, light, darkness, space, great waters, the formidable work of the seven days, into which mankind seems to have blundered unbidden, or else decoyed, even as I have been decoyed into this awful, this death-haunted command. The only spot of light in the ship at night was that of the compass lamps, lighting up the faces of the succeeding helmsmen. For the rest we were lost in the darkness, I walking the poop and the men lying about the decks. They were all so reduced by sickness that no watches could be kept. Those who were able to walk remained all the time on duty, lying about in the shadows of the main deck, till my voice raised for an order would bring them to their enfeebled feet, a tottering little group moving patiently about the ship with hardly a murmur, a whisper amongst them all. And every time I had to raise my voice, it was with a pang of remorse and pity. Then about four o'clock in the morning, a light would gleam forward in the galley. The unfailing ransom with the uneasy heart immune serene and active was getting ready the early coffee for the men presently he would bring me a cup up on the poop and it was then that i allowed myself to drop into my deck chair for a couple of hours of real sleep no doubt i must have been snatching short dozes when leaning against the rail for a moment in sheer exhaustion but honestly i was not aware of them except in the painful form of convulsive starts that seemed to come on me even while i walked from about five, however, until after seven, I would sleep openly under the fading stars. I would say to the helmsman, call me at need, and drop into that chair and close my eyes, feeling that there was no more sleep for me on earth. And then I would know nothing till sometime between seven and eight, I would feel a touch on my shoulder and look up at Ransom's face, with its faint, wistful smile and friendly gray eyes, as though he were tenderly amused at my slumbers occasionally the second mate would come up and relieve me at early coffee time but it didn't really matter generally it was a dead calm or else faint airs so changing and fugitive that it really wasn't worth while to touch a brace for them if the air steadied at all the seaman at the helm could be trusted for a warning shout ship's all aback sir which like a trumpet call would make me spring a foot above the deck those were the words which it seemed to me would have made me spring up from eternal sleep but this was not often. I have never met since such breathless sunrises, and if the second mate happened to be there, he had generally one day in three free of fever, I would find him sitting on the skylight half-senseless, as it were, and with an idiotic gaze fastened on some object nearby, a rope, a cleat, a belaying pin, a ring-bolt. That young man was rather troublesome. He remained cubbish in his sufferings. He seemed to have become completely imbecile, and when the return of fever drove him to his cabin below, the next thing would be that we would miss him from there. The first time it happened, Ransom and I were very much alarmed. 
we started a quiet search and ultimately ransom discovered him curled up in the sail locker which opened into the lobby by a sliding door when remonstrated with he muttered sulkily it's cool in there that wasn't true it was only dark there the fundamental defects of his face were not improved by its uniform livid hue it was not so with many of the men the wastage of ill health seemed to idealize the general character of the features bringing out the unsuspected nobility of some the strength of others and in one case revealing an essentially comic aspect he was a short gingery active man with a nose and chin of the punch type and whom his shipmates called frenchy i don't know why he may have been a frenchman but i have never heard him utter a single word in french to see him coming aft to the wheel comforted one the blue dungaree trousers turned up the calf one leg a little higher than the other the clean check shirt the white canvas cap evidently made by himself made up a whole of peculiar smartness and the persistent jauntiness of his gait even poor fellow when he couldn't help tottering told of his invincible spirit there was also a man called gambrel he was the only grizzled person in the ship his face was of an austere type but if i remember all their faces wasting tragically before my eyes most of their names have vanished from my memory the words that passed between us were few and puerile in regard of the situation i had to force myself to look them in the face i expected to meet reproachful glances there were none the expression of suffering in their eyes was indeed hard enough to bear but that they couldn't help for the rest i asked myself whether it was the temper of their souls or the sympathy of their imagination that made them so wonderful so worthy of my undying regard end of chapter five part one recording by expatria in bangor maine